Well, it's no secret that mature people have wisdom. Mature people have wisdom. That's what we're looking at today is two tests of spiritual maturity that Jesus gives us here in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you think about maturity, you should think not mostly of age, but of wisdom. You can be a young person and be wise. You can be an older person and be foolish. Uh, But maturity comes when people have wisdom. So how do we get wisdom? What's interesting, uh, John Calvin, when he was 26 years old, this was about 500 years ago, he was 26 years old, and he wrote uh, what has become known as the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Every seminary student uh, has to read it. It's a huge book, and the very first line of that uh, book, here's what he writes. He says, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Calvin at 26, displaying some incredible wisdom here, says wisdom happens when we know who God is and we know who we are. Now, this is important. Calvin doesn't have in mind here that we would head off to India on some sort of eat, pray, love journey of finding our inner person. That's not what he has in mind. He's saying, no, wisdom comes when you know who God is and you know who you are in relation to that God. And that kind of wisdom then will give you maturity. Now, here's what's fascinating. In this Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at over these last number of weeks, Jesus is basically telling us, here's who God is and here's who you are. Here's who God is, here's what he's like, here's what he values, and here's what it's like to relate to him. That's what's been going on throughout this whole Uh, sermon on the mount. In chapter 5, he said, hey, this is what the values are of my kingdom. This is what the values are of my family. In chapter 6, he said, this is what it looks like to relate to me. In chapter 7, he says, hey, watch out because not everyone who thinks they're relating to me really are. But this whole sermon is designed, this whole sermon on the mount by Jesus to give us knowledge of him and knowledge of ourselves. Now, in this passage, what we get is really two tests of that maturity. How well do we know God? How well do we know ourselves? These these test our wisdom. These test our ability to relate to ourselves and to the Lord. And the first section relates to judging others. That's verses one to six. The second section relates to prayer. And you might, if you're just reading through this, think, gosh, this feels kind of random. Like Jesus is talking all about this judge, judgment and a log in your eye and all this stuff, and then he moves to prayer. What is this? Is this just like the random greatest hits of Jesus? No. No, this has, this has some logic to it. And in both cases, both in how we relate to other people and in how we relate to God, what's at stake, what Jesus is really causing us to look at is how well do you know God and how well do you know yourself in relation to that God? So that's what we're looking at here this morning. So two tests of spiritual maturity. The first test comes in verses one to six, and it's this test. How do we relate to others? How do we relate to others? Another way to ask that same question would be, how do you see yourself in relation to others? You're not mature, spiritually speaking, if you don't relate to others in a God-honoring and in a healthy way. See, we always think that maturity is about what you know. It's about how many classes you've taken and how many books you've read and how smart you are. Or we think maturity is about how active you've been. You've done a lot of things, you've got a lot of experiences. No, 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 maturity is about your relationships. 
And this first section, this first test is saying, how are your relationships with people? The second question is going to be, how is your relationship with God? But here, how do we relate to others? How do we see ourselves in relation to others? Well, here's what Jesus says in verse 1. And this may very well be, this, this might be the most famous verse in the Bible. Um, I see John 3.16 sometimes up on the, you know, people hold a sign up at a football game, John 3.16. I've never seen someone hold up Matthew 7.1. But all your atheist friends know this verse. All your skeptical friends know this verse. In fact, some of you, like the reason you didn't want to come today is because you know this verse and you know how a bunch of people don't seem like they obey it. So what's the verse? Here's what Jesus says, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, don't judge because you'll be judged. Now, you can tell why people like to quote that to us, right? Because they look around at a Christian world and a Christian subculture and Christian people who are very judgmental, who are very harsh, who are very condemning, And they say, hey, didn't Jesus himself say, judge not, that you not be judged? Yeah, he did say that. Now the question is, what is he really saying? What does he mean? And particularly, is Jesus by saying this, is he saying, hey, don't ever evaluate anything. Don't ever have discernment. Don't ever say this is good and this is bad, this is right and this is wrong. Don't do that, that's judging. Is that what Jesus is saying? It seems like a pretty strong statement. Judge not that you be not judged. Huh. So are we supposed to just kind of turn off all evaluation? Well, whenever we get stuck in the scriptures, you read it, one of the things that's really helpful is just keep reading. And as you keep reading, one of the things that you see is actually in this chapter, Jesus tells us you have to evaluate, you have to discern, you have to use good judgment. In fact, in verse 6, he he says this bizarre thing about not giving to dogs what is holy or putting pearls before pigs. And uh, right before that, he'd been talking about how there might be times when you need to correct somebody or you need to confront somebody. But then Jesus says, but hey, listen, some people are like Dogs and pigs, they're not going to listen to you. Not that they're dirty, but that they aren't going to be able to understand or appreciate the kind of confrontation that you might bring. So there's a sense of evaluation there. In verse 15 and 16, look at the evaluation there in Matthew 7, 15. Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Okay, is Jesus saying, hey, don't make any evaluations, just listen to whoever talks? No, clearly not. He's saying, listen, there are some false prophets, and they're actually ravenous wolves. They're bad for you. They're trying to do damage to you, and the way you'll know it is by evaluating their fruits. What's the result of their life? What's the outcome of their teaching? Evaluate the fruit. So for sure, Jesus, when he says, judge not that you be not judged, he's not saying turn off your brain. He's not saying, hey, when you evaluate, when you hire a babysitter, don't think what they're like, just take whoever's willing. Does anyone think that's a good idea? Or if you're gonna hire somebody, do you think it'd be a good idea to like maybe 
see if they're a good person? Like, do a background check, check some references, like, evaluate them? Yeah. So Jesus isn't saying turn off all evaluation, turn off all discernment. What is he saying? Well, this word judge, it, it, it means to condemn, to pass a definitive judgment on somebody, to issue a verdict, specifically with a condemning sort of spirit. It, it, it's, it's one way you could kind of paraphrase this is don't ever tell someone, go to hell. That's what Jesus is talking about here. If you kind of put yourself in the place of God and you say, I'm the authority, I'm the king, I know what's right, and whoever doesn't do it the way I exactly would do it can go to hell. Jesus says, hey, watch out. Don't do that. Sure, you can evaluate good and bad. You can evaluate whether this person would be good to have your kids around or not. But you're not God. You don't know if they're going to heaven, if they're going to hell, and you're not in that place, don't play that role. Don't put on your junior Holy Spirit badge and try to act like you have it all figured out. Judge not that you be not judged. In fact, what Jesus is really talking about isn't, isn't just like these one-time evaluations. He's talking about a spirit that's judgmental, a a pattern of life. There's a number of verbs actually in this passage uh, in verse one, judge not. That's a present tense verb, meaning don't keep judging all the time. Verse two, for with the judgment you pronounce, that's a present tense verb. For with the judgment you're always using, that'll be used on you. Verse three, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eyes? That's a present tense. Why are you always seeing the problems with other people? So there's all these present tense verbs that are saying, this isn't about a one-time thing, this is about an attitude. This is about a pattern of constantly putting yourself in the place of God, looking down your nose at others and condemning. And that's what Jesus says we should avoid. Well, why? What reason does he give? Why should we avoid that? Well, two reasons. The first he gives in verse two, because your standards will be used on you. Look at verse two. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here's basically what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, you don't know this, but you're wearing around your neck an invisible voice-activated recorder. And every time you issue a declaration of condemnation where you say, that person can just go to hell and they're the problem with the world. And if everyone would stop being like them, be more like me. And every time you make those kinds of statements, it activates and it records. You didn't know you were wearing this, did you? And what happens is when eventually you stand before the king of kings, the judge of judges, He says, hey, take that off your neck and let me have it for a second. And you take it off and he presses play. And he lets you listen to your own thoughts and your own voice. And he says, did you live up to this standard? And what will you inevitably say? No, no, I didn't, I couldn't. This is what's amazing. Jesus is saying, we're not even going to have to use the Ten Commandments. 
We're not even going to have to use all this stuff in Matthew 5 about you heard it was don't murder, but I say don't be angry. We don't even have to go there. We'll just use your own words. We'll just use your own judgments. We'll just use your own measurements. And you won't pass the test. So that's the first reason why judgment's a problem, that kind of spirit of constantly condemning and evaluating everybody that way. Second reason it's a problem, he says, in verse, starting in verse 3, is that you're too easily blinded by your own sins. Look what he says in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Jesus is saying, hey, you have an amazing ability to see the little tiny specks in everyone else's eye, and you kind of miss that this is what you look like. You got a giant log in your eye, and you're going, hey, let me get that for you. Anybody want to get LASIK surgery from a blind surgeon? No. Jesus is saying, not only can you not see other people clearly because you've got a big plank in your own eye, but you can't help them and you don't even see yourself. So judgment's a problem because you don't live up to your own standard, but it's also because you don't even see yourself clearly. There's an example of this in the scripture that's a really uh, damning example. It's of King David. You read about it in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and King David there uh, just has really, even though he's a man after God's own heart, he has really gone after sin in a really significant way. He, uh, in the time of year, in the spring, when everybody would head off to war, David didn't go off to war, and he's got the best view of the city. His palace is overlooking everything else, and there's one nice day when he's out there, and he's lounging up on the roof, and he looks down, and he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath, and it's not his wife, and he says, I want her. And he sends some messengers to go and to get her, and she comes and they commit adultery. She gets pregnant. Uh-oh. Got a problem. Her husband, Uriah is his name. He's a soldier in David's army. And he's out to battle. And David has impregnated his wife while he was gone. David says, uh-oh, this is a problem. This isn't going to look good. Let's get Uriah off the battlefield and let's get him home so that he can, you know, reconnect with his wife. And they'll think that it's his baby. So he brings Uriah home, but Uriah is too honorable. He says, listen, I'm not going to go enjoy that experience with my wife if all my fellow soldiers couldn't do that. They don't get to come home. They don't get to be with their wife. I'm not going to do it. And so Uriah will not go in to his wife, and he's honorable. And so David then goes, oh, no. What do I do? He says, i got to kill him. So he writes a letter to the commanding officer saying, hey, put put Uriah in the front of the line and then pull back so that he'll be killed. And he gives the letter to Uriah. And Uriah carries his death sentence to his commanding officer, never takes a peek, never looks, goes, I wonder what this is, because he's honorable and he's going to serve his king. And he hands it to the commanding officer and sure enough, Uriah is killed. There's all these people involved. There's all these people that see it, right? There's people that send for Bathsheba and people that send messages in response. And there's all these in-betweens, go-betweens that see all this. Everybody can see David's sin except David. 
So David, or I'm sorry, so the Lord sends to David a prophet, the prophet Nathan. Here's what it says in 2 Samuel 12. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, now Nathan's going to tell him a story. He's going to tell him a parable to get David's attention. He says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Right, some of you, that's how you treat your dog. Right, come here, you do this gross kissy thing. They're like a pet, right? This is what Nathan's saying. He's saying, listen, there's a rich man with all of these lambs. There's this poor man, and he just has this one lamb, and he loved it so much, and they snuggled by the fire, and they, right? this was this precious lamb. And then Nathan continues, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Get what Nathan's saying? Saying the guy that had all the lambs in the world said, no, I can't give one up. Let me take that guy's lamb, even though that's his only one. What do you think of that, David? Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Really? He needs to die. Nathan says, hey, 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 let me have that. You are the man. You're the man, David. It's you. And you don't even see your own sin. Jesus says, watch out that you play the God role because you don't live up to your own standard and you don't even see the sin that's in your own life. You don't even see how much bigger it is, how much more obvious it is, how much more problematic it is. Now, get this. Jesus doesn't say, because you also struggle with sin, you should never, ever point anyone's sin out to them, right? The story of David and Nathan is a perfect example of that. Nathan pointed out David's sin. That wasn't wrong of him to do. Jesus isn't saying, hey, if someone has something in their eye, don't ever take it out. Don't ever point it out. That'll be judgmental. That'll be bad. You just deal with your own thing. No, no, no. Here's what he says. Verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he says, hey, you can make a moral judgment. You can say this is good and this is bad or you should stop doing this or you are the man. But before you do that, take the log out of your own eye. I've been thinking a lot these last weeks, like many of you, about this election that we have coming up. Where we have two candidates that are both really flawed, 
low character, very dishonorable in so many ways. Right, the news that's come out in the last 48 hours about Donald Trump is sickening, it's disgusting, it's evil. I have to change the channel when my daughters walk in the room to talk about a presidential candidate. It's horrible. But then I think also about my sexual sin. Before I was a Christian, since I've been a Christian, I think about the ways that I have, in my mind, treated women as though they weren't people made in the image of God, but they were there just for me. Where I've done and thought exactly like Donald Trump thought. You watch Hillary Clinton, who lied, deceit, lied, deceit, cover my tracks, try to look good, public this, private this, let me live this duplicitous thing. And I get very upset at that because I don't think that's good as a leader in the country. And then I think about me and about how often I play a part and appear one way publicly and another way privately and I'll just make it seem a little bit better and put a little bit more spin on it. I am that man. I am that woman. Now, the other thing, people always want to point out how David sinned. No one ever wants to point out that David repented. And I do think that having acknowledged my sin and having thought about my sin, I can still say that I think both of these people are morally disqualified from being the leader of our country. And that we have to somehow sort through the mess of what to do with that. So I don't think it's, I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, you can't say that Donald Trump... Donald Trump is okay, just whatever you think. No, no. The way Hillary Clinton has handled personal and private and nation, national security, oh, that's fine, just, you can't make any judgments. No, you can make judgments. You have to make judgments. You have to make decisions. But do it realizing your own sin. Realizing your own need for a savior. And don't just follow the example of David's sin, also follow the example of his repentance and of his faith, and realize that consequences may come because of your sin too. This whole passage really invites us to see God and to see ourselves with wisdom. How do we see God? Do we see God as just a father who's okay with everything we do, no matter what it is? No. This passage says, yes, God is your father. Jesus has spent this last two chapters talking about how God's your father. But this passage also says, God's also your judge. And you're going to have to give an account to him for your life. This passage also asks us to examine ourselves. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself mostly as a good person or mostly as a forgiven sinner? Because if you're going to get on your high horse and start playing the role of God, you can only do that if you think, oh, I'm a good person. I'd never do that. I wouldn't be like them. They're the problem. No. 
We should have the attitude. We should see ourselves the way God sees us, which is as a forgiven sinner, someone in desperate need of grace. Here's what Trevin Wax says about this. Trevin uh, put out a, a, a tweet just with this little phrase, and I loved this. It said, hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. Hell's full of people that are like, I'm the good person, you all are the bad person. Hell's filled with that. How do we know that? Because Jesus said God's going to use their own standard and they're not going to meet it. But heaven is filled with people who admit they are sinners, who don't just give apologies that say, if I hurt somebody, but they actually realize they hurt somebody and they repent and they forgive and they say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's who goes to heaven. Not because they're even so good at being sorry for their sin, but because they realize their only hope to have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. So this whole first passage really reframes maturity, saying how do you relate to other people? Do you relate to other people as though you're God? Or do you relate to other people as though you're a forgiven sinner who needs God's help? And if you relate to other people in that new light, You'll be gracious, you'll be warm, you'll be trusting instead of being suspicious, instead of being fault-finding, instead of being hypercritical. You'll be a beautiful imitation of your Savior. Let's look at the second test. We'll spend a little less time on this one. The second test is in verses 7 to 11. And there the test is how do we relate to God? How do we relate to God? First, Jesus said, here's how you relate to one another. Do you relate with humility? Second test is how do you relate to God? And spoiler alert, it's all going to be about whether you relate to God in humility. Again, here's what he says. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus is saying, here's another test of your wisdom. Here's another test of your maturity. Do you see yourself as a needy person who is constantly asking your heavenly Father for help? Do you ask? Do you seek? Do you knock? All of these verbs as well are present tense, meaning keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, don't stop, don't take a break, don't ever let down. I instantly, when I read that, I think of my two-year-old Mary uh, Mary is, uh, ever since the day she learned that this was the sign for milk, even before she could talk, every day that she could communicate for us about, to us about milk, every single day, multiple times a day, she has asked for milk. Like, there wasn't a day that she just forgot. There wasn't a day that she went, you know what? They get this for me all the time. I don't, probably don't even need to ask anymore. No, every day, and it is urgent. <laughs> Dad, I don't know. If, I mean, this is what it feels like. Dad, I don't know if you remembered this, but I really want some milk. <laughs> right? Every day. Why? Because she knows her only hope of getting milk is us. She's not strong enough to get this gallon jug that's as big as she is off the top shelf. If she was, she'd probably go help herself. 
But she knows she can't get it, and she knows she wants it, and she knows she needs it, so she asks. Now, God is a more gracious father than I am. Because there are times where I'm like, seriously, Mary, do you not know that every day we've given you milk? At least in my heart. That's what I'm saying. Like, relax. Jeez, I know. I know you need milk. I got it. (laughs) You know that that's not God's attitude? That's not God's heart? God's not like, geez, I got a world to run and you're asking me for a new job? Leave me alone already. No. Did you see what he said? Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He says, ask for what you need. This isn't a cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. If your child asks for bread, do you trick him with sawdust? If he asks for fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? You don't do that, right? If you know me, I love to like play jokes and be sarcastic, right? I'm yet to fill Mary's cup with motor oil. (laughs) You want some milk? Here you go. Right? Right? And I, I mean, I'm clearly, there's something wrong with me. Why would I even think to do that? And yet I still don't do it. And so Jesus says, verse 11, if you then who are evil, clearly Luke, you are evil, if even you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know how to love your kids, don't you? You know how to care for them. You know how you want to give them something good at Christmas. You know how you want to provide for their needs. You know how the greatest moments in your life, if you're a parent or a grandparent, is when you see your kids really happy. And that your lowest moments are their lowest moments. How much more does your heavenly father feel that way? How much more, if you who are sinful, who deal with all the problems that we deal with, know how to love your kids, how much more does God? So do you see God that way? Do you see that God is eager to bless you in this way? There's this great story that I've heard. I I don't know if it's a true story or just a preacher story, but it's a story of Alexander the Great, and that he had this general who, uh, who came to him and said, hey, Alexander, my... A daughter's getting married. I don't have the resources to be able to throw her the kind of wedding I'd like, but I'm wondering if you could help. Alexander said, great, said, sure. Go talk to the treasurer. Ask him for whatever you want, and it's yours. He goes down to the treasurer, and he asks the treasurer for like 10 times more than anybody's ever asked for anything. And the treasurer says, hold on, I need to, <laughs> I need to check this real fast. And he goes back to Alexander and says, hey, can you believe this guy? How dare he? He asked for 10 times more than anybody has ever asked for? Alexander says, give it to him. The treasurer's going, what? Give it to him? Are you kidding? Why would we give it to him? And Alexander the Great says, because in making such a big request, he shows that he believes that I am both extremely wealthy and extremely generous. Give it to him. 
don't you know that that's how your heavenly father is? He's extremely wealthy. He's extremely generous. He wants to give good gifts to his children. And you say, well, then why does he keep saying no to my prayer? Why does it feel like my prayers bounce off the ceiling? Why isn't he giving me what I ask? If everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds and everyone who knocks, it'll be open. How come it's not being open to me? And all I can tell you is that on the basis of this passage, here's what I know. That if God gave you what you're asking right now, maybe the time will come in the future, but if he gave it to you right now, it would be like giving you a snake. And I don't fully get it, and I don't fully understand it, but we have a God who is wise and who cares and who loves. He's not just a judge. He's also a father. Do you see God that way? Are you wise enough to see that that's who God is? That he's not just keeping score, but he's also eager to give good gifts? One of the best books you could read on prayer is called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And in that book, here's what Miller says. He says, all of Jesus' teaching on prayer in the Gospels can be summarized in one word, ask. Ask. His greatest concern is that our failure or reluctance to ask keeps us distant from God. Deep down, we just don't believe that God is as generous as he keeps saying he is. Why don't we ask? Because our view of God, our knowledge of God is incorrect. It's wrong. We think God is stingy. We think God's out to play tricks. We think God flinches toward no. Wrong. Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows you, and he loves you. Trust him. But we're also foolish because we don't know ourselves. Right, if wisdom is knowing God and knowing yourself, if maturity is knowing God and knowing yourself, well, we misunderstand God, we also misunderstand ourselves because we think we're self-sufficient. We think we're okay. We think, well, I got money and I got resources, I can handle this. And we don't see that we're really needy, that we're really desperately needing God's help. Just think for a moment about all the stuff in the world that's overwhelming and that you can't control. You're like, okay, I'm done already. <laughs> it's an endless list. We're needy. We're needy. And maturity comes through seeing that we're not God. So we don't need to judge everyone else. We don't need to play the role of God. We can see our own sin. And maturity comes through seeing that we're not God. We aren't self-sufficient. We have real needs, right? What's amazing throughout this is that the thing that binds both of these things together is humility, it's saying, I'm not God, so I don't judge, and I'm not God, so I need to ask the one who is. It's all about humility here, and that makes perfect sense because do you remember how Jesus started this sermon? His first words were, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you go, I, I don't have anything. I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if I have the answers. I feel stuck. I feel discouraged. Perfect. Perfect. God has you right where he wants you. Let's pray.